Hi, my name is Chris and I'm a postdoc and associated member of ML4Q and you're listening to ML4Q&A, a show where members from the Meta and Light for Quantum Computer cluster answer questions about their work in the cluster, their research and the future of quantum. In this episode, I'm talking to Rami Barons, recently appointed head of the Institute for Functional Quantum Systems at Forschungszentrum Jülich and associate members of ML4Q. We will talk about his research on superconducting circuits and the long way from his PhD work on superconducting detectors for astrophysics to demonstrating beyond classical computation with superconducting qubits at Google. We will talk about research at university versus research at Google and his plans for setting up his new group at the Institute for Functional Quantum Systems. So, at any rate, um, I'm very excited to uh, have uh, Rami Barnes on the podcast today because he's like a very recent uh, addition to the Ulich quantum computing effort um, and uh, quote unquote uh, brain gain from California. Um, we will talk about Rami's career, his research and plans in, in Ulich and um, the future of quantum. Uh, Rami studied at the Technical University of Delft, did his PhD in the group of Cosmo Nanoscience. Uh, did a postdoc in UCSB in the group of John Martinez. And then the group of John Martinez uh, joined Google um, in the uh, artificial intelligence lab. And now Rami comes to Jülich to head the PGI-13, which will be the institute or is the institute for functional quantum systems. Um, so Rami, we usually discuss people's career a little bit uh, because it's interesting for, for students and more junior researchers. Let's start with your PhD. You did your PhD in the group of Cosmo Nanoscience with Toyn Klappweig. What is Cosmo Nanoscience? Yeah, that's, that's a really good uh, question. So um, maybe, maybe I should go back to, to, to what we did in the group of Toyn Klappweig. And what we were doing was using superconducting um, systems to, to build astronomical detectors. And what you then have is basically light from stars or planets or, or gas clouds just you know they they travel for 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 many years arrive at some dish whether it's in the atacama desert or in space and are absorbed or by a superconducting circuit whether it's a joseon junction or a little thin wire of a superconducting material that then heats up and then you can measure a difference in resistance so what you then have is that The, the fact that electrons basically respond to those photons all the way from space is kind of a marriage between what happens at the nanoscale to make a detectable signal, which you can use to say something about the cosmos. So it's kind of, it's, it's really interesting how, how, how kind of information about the universe in the end gets carried by you know, paired electrons or, or, or other other effects that you read out mesoscopically at the nanoscale, the mesoscale. So that's the idea about Cosmo nanoscience, that you really uh, develop nanotechnology and to, 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 to essentially build a detector to learn about the universe. So as, as, as researchers, uh, when we start our PhD, we are often really influenced by our PhD supervisor, right? And Toyn Klappweig is, on the one hand, known for, for building these detectors, which is engineering-focused, but he's also known for really fundamental contributions to understanding the proximity effect and, and superconductivity. Um, did this influence you early on? 
Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I was, I mean, actually, so I, I actually enrolled in Turns Club like even before my PhD. I did my master's there. I did a master's project. And in that project, the idea was to take a small wire and have light come into that and it will heat up and you get a measurable resistance. This is called a hot electron bolometer. And at that point, I was actually amazed by the fact that indeed, you know, you know, learning about electrons was, will allow you to build sensors for space. And I think Tone's um, approach was very, very um, clarifying because he would ask himself, you know, I build a device, what is the life of an electron? Whether it's, you know, in a, you know, non-trivial material or, you know, for example, uh, you know, high resistivity superconductors or whether it's um, uh, under irradiation or under some form of external pressure. And um, that simple question, uh, you know, what's the life of an electron in a certain system has profound implications. And I, I think that is something that he said also guided his research through, 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 many, uh, through many layers. And, uh, maybe, maybe to me, the important question is, of course, we do fundamental physics when we do um, quantum information science, let's say, and, and sometimes um, discover, discover fundamentally new or interesting things. Do you think it's that we do fundamental physics differently if we always have an application in mind to guide us? Yes, yes, most definitely. Um, and I think w one way to, to maybe look at this is um, um, to look you know, for, uh, here. Um, three scientists, you know, Niels Bohr, Thomas Edison, and Louis Pasteur. Right? These three people have made major contributions to science and technology for mankind. But they're different. They are really different types of, 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 of working. So Niels Bohr was very much into the theory behind quantum mechanics. And in fact, we're trying to build the systems that you know, implement like, some of his, his ideas. Um, Thomas Edison was somebody who was not so much inventing. It was not like Maxwell, right, inventing new theories. But he ended up building lamps and building uh, uh, power grids, right? He was a builder. And then we have Louis Pasteur. And with Louis Pasteur, it, it's, it's also a different thing. So Louis Pasteur saw a problem, right? Milk, you know, goes bad quickly. And turns out that that simple question, like, how can I stop milk from spoiling? You know, ended, ended up making him one of the fathers of microbiology. So Louis Pasteur is somebody who ended up doing fun, really fundamental science, but with a specific, driven by a specific problem. And that's different than Niels Bohr, and it's different to Thomas Edison. So yes, if we have a specific application in mind, we would be doing research differently. And it's not worse or better, it's just different. And I think that that is important to uh, keep in mind that you have these really these three different ways of, of of pushing technology and research. So so today, because we we usually tell people that we want to build a quantum computer, right? So that that means that we are in the in the Pasteur camp, right? That we, we have a we have a clear a clear goal in mind, and then maybe we do some some science along the way. 
Um, well, I could return the question and ask you, well, what do we want to use the quantum computer for? Yeah, I mean, there's there's people who would say that indeed we would discover new, uh, maybe new physics, like un understand uh, high TC superconductivity or, uh, well, I mean, whatever understanding means, like being able to simulate a system where it arises or... So, so, so on, on the one hand, to further our understanding of complicated quantum systems. Yeah. So, but then the question is, well, what do you need to build together? And I think um, one of the answers is you want to build a large-scale error-corrected quantum computer, and that's uh, that's a big task. Yeah, for sure. Um, may maybe to 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 get more in that direction. Um, so. The, the focus both on fundamental physics and, and hardcore engineering is, is also there in the work of John Martinez, I think, from, from early on, right? So you, 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 um, after, after the work with Toyn on, on, on um, detectors, you, you joined the group of John Martinez. Did you know him before? How, how, did, you, how did you choose John Martinez as the next uh, step? Yeah, that, that, so I, I knew of John's work and I met him at a conference uh, um, and... Um, I mean, it's it's also important to realize that I was I was looking for a PhD position in 2009 2010, and at that point, superconducting qubits were not like it's it's not where things are right now. Uh, there were problems with coherence, there were problems with scaling, there were problems with materials, um, um, and you know, with turn with these uh, resonators for astronomical uh, detectors. I was also looking at these processes, right? So you have losses in a resonator that affects your Q factor. In a qubit, we call that T1, right? The energy coherence time. In the resonator, you have phase noise, right? The, the resonator phase, you know, wobbles around. In a qubit, you would have that the state starts to deface. So that's a T2 process. And we were building resonators that were working at 5, 6, 7 gigahertz which is exactly the frequency domain people park their qubits at, right? At least, you know, most of them. Um, so the, 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 the technical questions are different, but the underlying physics was the same. And uh, people made lofty uh, you know, promises back then also about quantum computing. And I thought, well, I'd, I'd like to figure, find out, you know, let, let me just join it and see, see how that goes. And I think John Martinez had indeed uh, a big focus on um, the engineering aspects, and his his aim was to really build something that works, and that that really um, um, you know connected to me well. So I applied, and uh, I you know I ended up there as a postdoc, originally for two years. Yeah, and you you stayed for uh, much longer. Yeah, yeah. So 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 in the first two years, I think we. Uh, we ended up fixing, it's quite interesting, so, so because I, I, I knew from my background is that, you know, if you build a superconducting, put a superconducting film on a, on, a, on a piece of silicon or sapphire, it will start detecting radiation, right? And the same thing is whether you, you know, any etch and qubit out of it. So the first, I think, uh, project I did there is to clean up the experimental stage in uh, John's lab and to really get rid of like external magnetic fields, external stray radiation. So 4K radiation turns out to be a major problem. And um, suddenly the quality factors were uh, much better. So it turned out people were measuring not so much the limiting factors of their materials, but of their experimental setups. 
And when we realized that, we could make better uh, uh, qubits. And I think we started also building transmon qubits. So you know, I renewed the PhD or sort of postdoc for another year because things are going well. And then we made this uh, cross-shaped device, and we hit 40 microseconds of T1. So I thought, well, let, let me you know add another year to my uh, postdoc because it's going well. And um, you know, at that point, we uh, we started to make actually devices that consisted of two, three, four, five qubits, up to nine qubits. So, um, yeah, at, at that point, I mean, we, we knew we had something that worked. I mean, the foundations of that, what we were building there, really worked. And uh, yeah, so that's that's one of the reasons I stayed so long for the postdoc. That's very cool. Like, let's let's maybe take a quick step back for for the listeners and. Uh uh, talk just very briefly about the basics of superconducting qubit. What, what should people think of when they think of a superconducting qubit? Can we can we condense it down for non-experts? Yes. So um, one of the beautiful things about superconductivity is that you have an Avogadro number of electrons. Uh, um, you know, if you cool the system down, condense into a single microscopic state, right? And that means you can describe that and that whole ocean of, of electrons with a single energy parameter and a single phase. And that's on one superconducting island. So if you would have another superconducting island, you would have of the same material, you would have the same energy parameter, but you have different phases. And if you would connect them through something that's called a weak link, you would have a supercurrent flowing between these two superconducting islands to equalize the phase. So it depends on the phase. So now you have a current, and therefore an inductance associated with it, that depends on a quantum property, namely the phase. Now if you put a capacitor in, also in, in parallel, which you know two metal islands already do, you would have basically a, a circuit consisting of a capacitor and a Josen junction, which is inductive. So now you have basically uh, built a superconducting quantum electrical circuit. And they consist of a capacitor, of a Josen junction, and you can also put a lumped element inductor. And basically, all pretty much all the superconducting circuits or superconducting qubits out there are one or another, you know, concoction of, of these three elements: a capacitor, a Josen junction, and in some cases, an inductor. Yeah, and I think I think what's 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 important to keep in mind there is um, you, you said that there's a macroscopic number of electrons. So these these qubits are. Um, artificial atoms in a sense because they have well-defined quantum levels but they um, are visible to the naked eye like yeah. you can we're really talking about something that is not atomic uh, in scale uh, but but rather really really I mean they're small like I don't know half a millimeter or well in like principle this, I mean the superconducting island can be like arbitrarily sized basically and the advantages you can, what you said, is you can make your qubits quite large, and that makes them easy to couple to, uh, easy to route control wiring around it, um, easy to you know add in uh, uh, control electronics or control wiring for readout, for control for coupling, the whole thing. And because your system is big, 
And you can also change the shape of the superconducting island. So you can make interdigitated capacitors, you can make longer waveguides. So it's very flexible. And it's also compatible with uh, uh, microfabrication, so you can go to a clean room and essentially also stencil these qubits you know, on a roll or in a grid. So it has the um, elements of scaling and the versatility of uh, you know, arbitrary connectivity of, to some level in, in, in it. And that's, I think, a big advantage of using superconducting systems to do quantum computing. I, of course, agree. I should mention for the listeners maybe that I also did my PhD in superconducting qubits. So I'm a little bit biased towards them as well. I also think that the larger scale of the superconducting qubits is really not a disadvantage. In a sense, the, all the good superconducting qubits right now are pretty large. Yeah. Um, and sometimes people say that quantum dots are the much better qubits, for example, electronic quantum dots, because they are so much smaller. But currently the superconducting qubits are really at a nice sweet spot where the wiring and the qubits are kind of of a similar size. Well, even if you can make quantum dots of like 100 nanometer size or something, currently, eventually you need to take the wires out and, and uh, fan out and, and uh, interconnect. So, so um, there's a lot of challenges there. Even, even if you want to have smaller qubits, uh, you also need to package the whole thing eventually to have to have a processor that can be connected to wires. Well, yeah, and, and I, 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 yeah. What, what I love about this is that, you know, nature is fundamentally quantum mechanical, right? So if you put an atom or an ion somewhere, um, it, it will behave quantum mechanically and you can use it for quantum computing. But to use it, and so nature is, is a beautiful, I think, example and inspiration here. But in order to make something you really want to adjust and use and, for example, have, you know, tuning of the frequency uh, rapidly, you kind of want to engineer a system that can do the same thing. So that, that's what I love about nature. It's like, yeah, you know, it works. The, the, the foundations work. Go and look at it. But if you want to do it yourself, go do your homework. <laughs> yeah, Make a system yourself. I think I think also to me the the real beauty of superconducting qubits and unfortunately in my day-to-day -day work I maybe don't get to play with this enough is that in principle you can engineer it's it's like the most circuit quantum electrodynamics this uh, science of superconducting circuits is maybe the most sophisticated framework for building some arbitrary Hamiltonians uh, or and, well, not entirely arbitrary but you really have a big toolbox for realizing different uh, Hamiltonians and, and systems. And uh, we usually, you know, use transmon qubits or some, some well-known form of qubit, but in principle, there's a lot of freedom to engineer there. Yeah, yeah. Although I would say that I think the ideal recipe for a qubit or what platform, whatever, you know, is, is, um, is we, we, we haven't arrived at the perfect qubit yet. So I'm, um, of course, I'm uh, partial to superconducting qubits, but I think it's 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 interesting to also keep looking at the uh, at the um, yeah um, the performance and and I think especially the 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 rate of improvement of performance of of related or other uh, technologies. Yeah, may maybe we can pick up again at your uh, at sort of the this, the your um 
the history of your research and 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 sort of uh, pick up. So you joined the Martinez Group, and I think what's instructive is the Martinez Group at the time was already doing lots of fancy qubit experiments. A lot of first uh, solid state experiments yeah. were done in the Martinez yeah. Group, yeah. and in the beginning with phase qubits, which is a type of superconducting qubit. And I think you were instrumental in the transition to these transmon qubits. And, and, and then Xmon qubits. Can you say something about about uh, that? Yeah. So so I think uh, um, um, we uh, we were, yes. The John, John's lab was working with phase qubits, which has I think uh, one of the big advantages is that you can do high fidelity readout um, if you don't have um, um, uh, you know quantum limited amplifiers, which I think back in the day was a strong strong advantage. But there are a number of other advantages. I think you, have, you needed a large uh, capacitor, um, and the readout itself also led to uh, um, quite some heating being generated on the chip or in other other qubits. So uh, we we wanted to to start working on on transmon qubits, and um, well, I mean, we, we we designed first systems, and that 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 took uh, a while to characterize. And I think the first system we built actually worked. But to find where the qubit was in frequency space, because we still use the, we build a transmon, couple that to a phase qubit, and then use the standard phase qubit readout, and that took three weeks of safariing to see where the transmon was. But we ended up finding it, and it it kind of worked. I think the T1 was like one or one and a half microsecond. So you know, first device kind of worked. That that's that's the first for me. I've I've never had that. Um, but then we realized we made some mistakes in the design of the transmon, and um, you know, uh, I came up with this cross-shaped device to really make things simpler, um, and that turned out to work well. And the reason is because it's a very highly symmetric um, geometry that has basically in in embedded in it essentially screening from the outside because it's so close and uh, encompassed by ground plane. So you have basically a qubit that is essentially well insulated from the outside, but it has these four legs. So you can connect it to a readout resonator. You can connect it to another qubit. You can connect it to you know other control lines. So that was kind of a template to really um, be at this optimal spot where you want to you want to isolate your qubits, right? But you also want to control them, and that that always that you know that's always a bit of a fight. And this design was with this design, we were able to do that. And I think what's what's maybe important to mention is that during that time, uh, people were moving to 3D transmons, and that's essentially a big cavity in which you place uh, a Josephson junction with some big antenna pedals. Um, and and they were getting really beautiful results. I think you know tens uh, tens to up to a hundred microsecond of coherence time. Um, they are a little harder to couple, but at that time people were focused on on the fundamental question: Can we can we make a really highly coherent qubit? Um, and people started to like move away from planar qubits, right? Where you just you know you work on a piece of silicon, you have multiple qubits on that, because they they well they honestly thought that would just limited it probably wouldn't work and in that um, um, phase we were developing planar qubits and um, that ended up working and that's based on the um, cleaning up the environment 
uh, based on like materials science. I think we had wonderful MBE aluminum uh, grown and on a good design. And what was interesting is, you know, we, we reached, I think, 40 microseconds, 50 microseconds. But when we placed more qubits on the same chip, the coherence didn't tank. It didn't uh, go bad, which is typically what happens if you put more qubits in boxes, things start to go uh, go bad. And at that point, we realized we had like at least you know a first step towards scalable design here. And now we scaled it up rapidly. So in 2013, we had this cross-shaped device. And in 2014, we put five on our own. And that worked. And we started to, to, to uh, work... Uh, to, to implement quantum logic gates. Maybe maybe as a fun side note, I mean, you guys called this design the Xmon because of the, the plus or X shape. Yeah. And I, th I think this is a really cool case of branding and science. In principle, it's a transmon with a different capacitor shape, right? But the name really stuck. And I think it's funny because people, I think for a while among even scientists who are not exactly experts, there was some confusion um, that they would distinguish between the transmon and the exmon. And, and oh, no, it, it's the same ideal Hamiltonian. It's exactly the same ideal Hamiltonian. But then the question is, um, you know, I mean, the actual Hamiltonian, I mean, if you have a qubit with a T1 of one microseconds, there are lots of crap terms on that Hamiltonian. All right, so your actual Hamiltonian is not the same. And... Um, we wanted to really highlight that uh, that that point. It's it, yes, the ideal Hamiltonian is just the same, but the actual Hamiltonian, I mean, is 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 cleaner because we have less coupling to crap terms, and I think that is really a concept we wanted to get across. And I I I guess that worked. Yeah, no, it was quite. I think it, yeah, it was quite successful. And uh, indeed, the scaling is, is then important. And I think from then on, basically, the five qubit chip, the nine qubit chip, you guys just um, ticked off a lot of very important uh, boxes for um, for uh, building a quantum computer. So let's just go through a few examples. I think maybe so that the Xmon was the first milestone that you guys just showed. Okay, we have this slightly different uh, design, which is already somewhat extensible uh, in an architecture. Um, then the next step to me, or the next really big step, was the gates at the surface cold threshold, right? Can you can you explain what that means? Yeah. Um, um, so with this five qubit device, we 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 uh, implemented uh, qubit logic gates, and that's basically that you manipulate the quantum state on a local level. So that's a single qubit gate operation, but also try to create entanglement between them, and this is what we call a two qubit gate or an entanglement gate. And the whole challenge is to do that right, uh, especially an entanglement gate, because that's the hard thing, because it's a two-body uh, uh, um, uh, problem. Uh, to do that right in a five-qubit system. I had to do a two-body operator correct in a five-qubit system. And this uh, hasn't, hadn't been done that well. I think um, the best experiments had like four or five percent error in superconducting qubits. And iron traps actually at the point had really good two qubit gates in a two ion system. That's like less than a percent error. But at the time when they went to three um, ion system, I mean, the error was already at, uh, at like 5%. So we were really worried that, that um, this would be a problem. 
So we, um, uh, I think we use an adiabatic um, approach to a controlled phase. And, and, and what's interesting about that approach is that the spill shape is not so important, right? The, the, you have a certain trajectory where you put qubits close in resonance and pull them back, but the exact variation of that or the exact amplitudes, um, the, the end result is somewhat insensitive to this. So that's a very, um, has a very practical approach. And using this, this gate, we called, I think, errors of below a percent for all pairs of this five qubit system. And um, um, that and the single qubit gates was, I think, 0.1%. So it's like you can do a thousand single qubit gates and not get an error. With the entanglement, you can do over 100 gates and not do an error on, on, on average. And this was actually at the uh, threshold for what people were thinking of when building an error-corrected quantum computer. Because you need to run a certain error correction algorithm, which has a large overhead, and you have to do all these entanglement gates and all these operations to really put a bunch of physical qubits, let them act together and actually like compose or, or, or form a single logical qubit. And those requirements uh, hadn't been met before in a system that was arguably scalable. And I think with this five qubit experiment, that changed because we, we were able to get uh, reliable and reproducible low errors on gates in a system that you, you could see scale. And that was quite, I think, uh, uh, well, it was a bit of a breakthrough, I would say. Yeah, and at the time in the field, for sure, it was also uh, received as such. I, I was... Just, I, I think I just started my PhD around the time, and there was already a lot of excitement at the at the March meeting at the time, which is the big conference where where these results are usually presented. Yeah, so that, that was that was that was funny because usually those those uh, um, meetings were you know with the superconducting qubit meeting was kind of like half filled uh, in the room, and at some point the room was so full the uh, fire uh, people from the fire department came and told people to leave partly because it became unsafe. So that was that was <laughs> that was fun to see. So uh, then maybe from from there, uh, uh, the the next important step was that you guys did classical error correction, yeah. on a quantum chip. Yeah, I would say like I, I would see yeah. that like so you you had shown that your gates are good enough, and then you went from five qubits to nine qubits. Yeah, and you used those nine qubits to do error correction. Can you? Just very briefly explain what's the main idea. Yeah, absolutely. So the idea of error correction is that you grab a bunch of qubits and 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 compose a logical qubit, and um, the way that works is is you um, you entangle qubits, so you have data qubits and measure qubits, and you would every cycle you would measure the state. And if there would be, uh, um, and and that would record a parity error. So think of the following: you have you have uh, data qubit, measure qubit, data qubit, and you know it's quantum mechanics. So you're not allowed to look at the data qubit, right? Because that that would project it. But what you can do is you can look at the parity between the two data qubits. And to do that, you have to have that qubit in the middle. Let's call it the measure qubit. Interact with the left data qubit, then interact with the right data qubit, and then you measure it. And if that measurement switches, 
that switch would imply a parity error. So one of the data qubits flipped. Now you can't tell which one, but if you repeat that, right, where you have data qubit, measure qubit, data qubit, measure qubit, and you repeat that, then you will be able to tell which data qubit flipped. Now you don't know what the information was, but you will be able to say that it flipped. And you can just keep track of that until the end of the, you don't even need to correct it. You just keep track of that. It's like, oh, at the end of my run, I know this data qubit in this round flipped. So I can flip it back in software and I have my, I saved my, my data. Um, now with surface codes, this is done in a two dimensional array where you correct for um, bit flip and for face flip. Uh, right, it's quantum, right? So you, you have two axes you need to correct on. Now the one dimensional variant of that is you can only correct for or, or bit flip or face flip. We chose to work with bit flip initially because that's, that was you know what we could do. Um, but we, what, we, what you do have to do is figure out how to run fast cycles of entangling gates and measurement. And um, we, we ran that. And that worked in terms of uh, really detecting those errors. And uh, we even applied this on a quantum state, right? Because you say, well, classical error correction, it wasn't able to correct a phase error, but it wouldn't additionally, you know, it wouldn't destroy phase error. So we did uh, put in a GHC state or like a fully entangled state in the data qubits and try to, uh, to correct that or try to uh, stabilize at least bit errors. And that, that worked. So that was, I think, one of the first demonstrations of um, uh, repetitive error detection in a superconducting system using entangling gates and using fast measurements. I think even beyond that, um, usually the ion trap community was always slightly ahead of the superconducting qubit community, right? It's fair to say like they um, started out earlier. They started out and earlier. And they had better, uh, yeah. better and more qubits for a long time. Like they, yeah. they reached 13 qubits uh, around the time maybe that you guys had five or nine. I think 14 even, yes. Yeah. Or maybe 14, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's fair to say also that at this point, this uh, repetitive error correction experiment, I think they couldn't do at the time. I think by now they have done it. But uh, at the time, sort of superconducting qubits started to be able to do things that the uh, sort of older and, and, and more advanced technology uh, uh, had not done yet, right? Um, as far as I understood, yes, that's true. And one of the reasons that if you would do multiple operations on an iron trap, the trap heats up and cooling that, well, you'd have to wait. So doing fast repetitive cycles continuously is something that was um, technically beyond uh, I, I, what you wanted to do. For I think they also the had trouble with fast non-demolition measurements. I, I think that yeah. maybe maybe that's that's yeah. another thing. That's but, another thing. But the, for sure, at some like it's it's really an interesting point, right? Because it was for a long time that the iron traps were ahead, and that you could really always point at any superconducting qubit experiment and say, "Well, they did it five years before, and usually also better." Uh, because yeah, no, and 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 I uh, especially when we were doing. Um, benchmarking these gates, there's some technique called randomized benchmarking. And what you do is you put, uh, you, you run a set of random gates, and at the end you apply a reversal gate that inverts the whole thing. So logically you would have done nothing, uh, but yeah, no, you'd, you'd run all those gates. And all this stuff was already done in NMR, actually, even before iron traps. So. <laughs> yes. 
true. So it was, it was, it was, it was good because it, it, it helped us a lot. I, I think that's, that's also the, the NMR thing is super interesting. Indeed, it's sort of the ancestry of quantum computing. Yeah. But the difference was that in NMR, people really didn't have single shot readout at the time. So you couldn't take uh, one nuclear spin and read out its state once, but you always had many, many of them. And so that, that I guess is with the superconducting yeah. qubits, you really have one qubit and you read out that qubit at that round. Yeah. And you can say, what is the state of the qubit? You don't have to average multiple rounds or no. multiple qubits. No, that's correct. Single shot measurement. And yeah, and single shot measurement is something that superconducting qubits really excel at, I, I would say. Somehow that's and that's that's maybe not not necessarily something that the other systems can integrate so easily with with all the other stuff they do. Yeah, it's interesting, I think, measurement. Because you have a qubit. Right now we're using something called dispersive measurements. So you take a resonator, you couple it to a qubit. And that resonator you send pulses through that gets amplified by a quantum limited amplifier then a commercially available uh, high electromobility transistor amplifier then all the way to room temperature to a control electronics to really try to you know onboard decoding of that signal all this stuff to get one bit of information out yeah it's uh, also it's really funny like these um, uh, some of the amplifiers that we use uh, were previously championed also for astrophysics measurements, right? At, at least there was there was astrophysics and and uh, 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 groups that that were sort of in the same frequency regime, and yeah. So that there's an interesting engineering uh, uh, overlap. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I think maybe maybe remind me how it all went. But around the time that you guys did the nine qubit stuff, eventually the Martinez group was sort of integrated into Google from the University of Santa Barbara. That's right, yeah. So, um, I, I, no, I think uh, John was approached by, I think, a number of um, um, people. And I think Google was highly interesting. At the same time, I think uh, we, we were, um, uh, I mean, we, we, we got our funding from the US government, right? And they implicitly put a limit on the number of qubits that we could build. And uh, that limit uh, was apparently placed at 10. And I remember that, that you know, <laughs> that people were like, what, what the heck? You know, it's like, you know, we, we understand that you put that you between one qubit and 100 million qubits for an error machine. You want to put a limit somewhere, but to place it at 10. So it, it, it was clear that uh, continuing um, that route was not not going to you know, not, not going to allow us to to, uh, to just continue building the, uh, the technology. So I think joining Google was, uh, was a really, really good move at that time. To, uh, it was a really good, um, and it allowed us to continue to work. So how, how does it work? How, like, how, how did you experience your research group being sort of corporately, like, uh, uh, well, absorbed by a major corporation. How, how, how is that as a researcher from university? Yeah, it, it, was a, it was an interesting experience. Um, I mean, yeah, I had no idea about, about any of this stuff. Um, I have interviews and I had to change my visa and, and you know, we, we got a new lab and we had to continue our work because, you know, we still had things running at uh, UCSB. So it was an, uh, it was an interesting period. Um, 
but we, 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 you know, we were able to continue to work. And I would say that I think joining Google was, um, um, you know, we essentially, I mean, we were already on a track to really try to figure out the engineering and the technology behind this, and we continued that. But I think with Google resources and um, also, I think, a really good um, um, software infrastructure and also a software infrastructure mindset uh, that, that really helped and that helped really accelerate the development to you know, where we're now. So um, how, how important are the people at the top in this context? Um, there's John Martinez, who obviously made this brave decision to yeah. um, really change the way that his funding worked. And uh, you have Hartmut Neven at Google, who was, uh, I guess, instrumental in, in, in taking the decision to uh, 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 sort of fund a research group and then integrate it into the company. Um, how, how, how does this, how, how important were the people um, at the top to, to uh, making this transition work? Now, I think, I think it's, it's, it's very important to make that uh, transition work. But I would say that the uh, seeds of this were laid before. Um, I think, you know, John was always focused on building something that works and to engineer around something that you would function. And I think that's a really healthy mindset. And Hartmut is from uh, from the other side where he has a big background in machine learning, right? He, I think he was uh, a professor in, in California. He started, I think, two companies. Uh, one of them was, um, I think, taken over by Google. And in Google, he also worked on Google Glass and a number of other things. And he was attracted by uh, quantum computing at that point by uh, annealing because it had possible applications to machine learning. So there was always a machine learning um, approach to that. So you'd have you know engineering mindset and a application mindset here. So I think you can see there a very healthy um, um, match that really helped it uh, helped it yeah. Yeah, it's kind no. of curious that the quantum uh, computing part in Google became part of this artificial intelligence lab, right? That's what it's... Yes, called. that's the name, yeah. And is this like an obvious connection, do you think, that um, quantum computers will have this obvious application in artificial intelligence systems, or is this... Uh, well, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. I mean, uh, what's the... Con I mean... I mean, what, 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 what can you do with a quantum computer, right? And, and I think there are multiple answers and at multiple levels, right? You can build an error-corrected quantum computer. There's a number of things you can do. Um, but that's going to take a while. So then you ask yourself, well, what can we do now? And I think the answers there are less clear. I think uh, with artificial intelligence, uh, there, the slight issue is that you're competing with essentially, well, what is it, 30 years of improvements and, and work in classical systems. And so that, that is uh, challenging to have that, uh, to, to first overcome that and then to yeah. go beyond that. And I mean, yeah, the recent, the recent developments in, in AI stuff are all tied to GPUs, right? Yeah. Mostly. And, and Google also had some cool hardware developments of their own, right? This, this tensor processing unit, I think, is something that Google yeah. uh, developed. So it's, it's not only a software company. They also have some 
some hardware. No, that's right. They 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 do a lot of uh, hardware uh, hardware too, but um, they don't really they, they do they use it for internal uh, projects. So they don't really like sell hardware. So okay. Um You guys teamed up with Google, and I think then there's another sort of transition in how the qubits worked, right? There was a change from, from Xmons to Gmons, yeah. and that made essentially this big breakthrough then of Google and, and, and John Martinez uh, uh, of quantum supremacy uh, possible, right? Yes. So, um, um, and uh, what we use is, or what was used in Google is the... Um, uh, tunable coupler in capacitive. So I think there's a lot of work has been done on inductive coupling, but the change was to use a capacitive coupler. And this is actually in the thesis of Charles Neal uh, when he f f finished at UCSB. And uh, that uh, worked really well and it worked quite fast and it allowed to, it really allows you to do parallel operations so you turn on coupling between certain parents you turn it off with others and that parallelization um, really speeds things up all right because if you have a fixed coupling system and you want to work on two qubits you need to kind of turn off the direct neighbor so that's six direct neighbors so it becomes an eight body operation just to do a two body operation and with tunable couplers you can Uh, you avoid that. It's 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 easier to do in practice. So that is something that really helped uh, uh, bring uh, you know build a system that allowed you to have high fidelity in parallel uh, at speed. And this is uh, an ingredient definitely of uh, supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. So for the for the non-expert listeners, I think the point is uh, in the in the previous experiments you had the qubits in a line, right? So every qubit had two nearest neighbors. Yeah. And of course, that's easier than having four nearest neighbors uh, uh, in in a uh, that you, uh, that you would have in 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 a two D array on a, when you put your qubits on a grid. So uh, and and for the for the quantum supremacy experiment, of course, you put the qubits on a on a two dimensional array of of uh, order of fifty qubits. Then, yeah, yeah. But it it was built on top of the, all the technology that we developed previously, right? To have the quiet environment, to have the um, high-quality materials. It's still cross-shaped to minimize uh, couplings and then to add that tunable element to really uh, optimize things. So I think it, it's a cascade of breakthroughs that all compile to make a system work. And I think that that also highlights the many different facets you need to actually build a system that can do something. Do, do you think you guys could have built the 50 qubit quantum computer with the academic resources or was the move to Google a game changer that allowed you to do more complicated experiments? Well, I'm still amazed that we're able to put nine qubits together with academic resources and get fidelities better than what was done at that time in other, you know, better funded institutes and uh, corporate environments. Um, so... I guess the answer is yes, with Google resources, that was critical, but I think even more important is to have, I think, the, the, the right approach and the right architecture, the right mindset. And um, um, 
you know, some of the experiments we did like years ago still haven't been fully reproduced in other labs. And that, that, that is, uh, I think, interesting. Absolutely. Um, so uh, let's let's talk a bit about about uh, uh, quantum supremacy because that's obviously like the really big, like yeah. I think I think we want to call it beyond classical computing, or exactly right? because yeah. because I think uh, it's 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 a it's an annoying word now. Or, or people say quantum advantage, right? I, um, I would call it beyond classical. So so okay. Um, what's what's the what's the core result uh, that got people so excited? Yes. So, um, the thing you want to do with quantum computing is to implement an algorithm, whether it's generating a state or figuring out uh, interactions between uh, competing ground states to simulate materials or simulate chemical interactions. One of the applications will be to, you know, figure out what, what catalysts you could use. Um, but fundamentally, it all comes down to running an algorithm in a programmable quantum processor. And to do that in a way that goes outside of the possibilities of, or beyond the capabilities of classical supercomputers. And, um, this experiment, this beyond classical experiment, is based on sampling from a probability distribution of a highly entangled complex state. And then it comes down to how do you build that state? Well, it has to be large. Yeah? So, you know, 50 qubits is, uh, you know, you need a RAM of 2 to the power of 50. And that's kind of where the borderline of what you can do with classical computers. But it also needs to be a complex state. And for that, you need many cycles of single qubit gates and two qubit gates to really slush around this quantum state and really connect all these single qubits together and make a highly complex entangled state that really explores the Hilbert space of 2 to the power 50. And that is something that requires not just a number of qubits, but it also requires a high fidelity, meaning the, the all the gates you apply, you, I mean, you accumulate error whenever you do something. And um, um, to have that error be small with respect to how many, you know, how many cycles of gates you can do. And that combination of number of qubits and number of, and the cycle depth of your algorithm actually created state that we, you could sample from and that probability distribution you could get is no longer easy to compute on a classical supercomputer and it would actually be outside of its capabilities. And at that point you have run an algorithm, sure it's making a random but highly complex state and to sample its probability um, as a precursor to running an algorithm where you would create a state that would then you know, tell you something about a molecule or something. So being able to do that beyond the abilities of classical computing was a demonstration of beyond classical computing in a quantum in a programmable quantum processor. So of course afterwards there was a lot of discussion. Uh, um, uh, IBM, who is a company that also does quantum computing and builds supercomputers, uh, came out and they said, "Well, we can do this computation better, and it's it's not as 
uh, uh, supreme as, uh, as, 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 as publicized. Um, but what, what do you see, like, how many people designed the quantum supremacy experiment and, and, and built the com computer? Co like, how complicated do we have to imagine this system compared to the IBM supercomputer that uh, uh, was sort of the competitor? Oh, well, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know much about supercomputers, classical supercomputers, so I, I can't tell you much about that. What I would say is that um, I don't think this was run because it would be, I think they run into issues where they would have to use hard drives and that would be extremely slow. And there's also another thing where, you know, running a supercomputer for uh, a, few, oh, a while, you know, that, that also burns up quite some energy and, you know, it would be more energy efficient to just have one chip in a one single dilution refrigerator and press run. So um, I think also in terms of energy usage, it's in the, um, there's some advantages here. So yeah, it's, it's a David Goliath kind of situation, right? The supercomputer, I don't, did you ever see any of the supercomputers that you guys used in the simulations to, to verify the experiment? I haven't personally seen them, no. Because they are bigger, yeah, right? They're, yeah, like they're massive. The, the, the quantum computer takes up roughly, let's say, the size of a room a larger room with all the control electronics and uh, it's about I'd say, is it eight by eight meters or something so yeah. seven meters yeah. and and these supercomputers are significantly larger like the IT guy has to walk quite some distance to put all the all the cables no so so indeed uh, then then maybe just a, a quick uh, a quick wrap up on, on on some of the Google experiments I think you afterwards also did um, surface code prototypes. So you demonstrated there was some, some experiments on demonstrating error correction, right? Yeah, that's right. But I think one of the um, uh, topics that was, um, I think, discovered but not addressed is back when we run this, you know, nine qubits on a row and do the repetition code experiment, we saw that the ability of the system to correct errors, that rate of correction was actually decreasing while we were running it. So something was deteriorating while we were running the algorithm. And um, one of the things we discovered was that, well, we use these transmont qubits, and those are weakly nonlinear qubits, meaning that the computational state is stored in zero and one, But there is also a two and a three and a four. And if you're not really careful with your control pulses, you can start exciting those. And we were doing that a little bit, but it would just accumulate. And, and that would essentially, to some extent, poison the system. So um, in, in, in the meantime, I think mean, we worked uh, um, on a reset protocol that would clean out Uh, this uh, this higher yeah, this higher level state population this, this, which is parasitic and um, you can look at the results and see that it would work about 50% better if you would implement this uh, leakage removal strategy and that tells you that it's one of the dominant errors and uh, the reason is that um, leakage Right, into these higher level states, they're long-lived. So you get errors that are correlated in time over many cycles. But it also can spread. 
because these qubits are, you know, the couplings are turned on and off, and these higher-level states start to spread. So it also leads to errors that are correlated in space. And that combo of errors correlated in space and errors correlated in time is actually one of the Achilles heels of error correction. Because the assumption of error correction is more qubits is better. So if you have local errors, you can keep correcting because the grander ensemble will be able to push down local errors better. But correlated errors is something that can, can completely derail that picture. And um, um, that's why removing that leakage is something that was a critical um, contribution to running um, yeah, larger systems. I would also say that uh, I think that was done until like 30, 40 qubits. Oh, no, it's 30 qubits. So I think you see a larger system that is uh, better behaved. So that's also what you see in the years of technology development. Um, maybe just, yeah, one, one very quick, uh, you had a recent really cool experiment about um, quasi-particles, which are broken Cooper pairs, right? Yeah. And um, uh, I think you called it catastrophic um, uh, 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 failure events or something like yeah. this, right? Yeah. Um, what does this, basically what you guys showed was that um, uh, cosmic rays or background radiation or something can also affect the qubits and in a way that it doesn't make single qubits fail but that it can, you know, make the entire process of fail, right? That's right. Yeah, it's, it's kind of back, back to the roots where, you know, it turns out that if you grab a piece of silicon or substrate and cool it down to, to tens of millikelvins, it will detect any energy and that will lead to a measurable change. Uh, even when you put a little superconducting film on it and call it a qubit. So, um, Yeah, I mean, we saw that every about every 10 seconds for the size of chips we had, uh, the whole system would go haywire for, you know, milliseconds on a row. So, um, yeah, you, 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 I mean, we were constantly exposed to high energy rays, right? This is cosmic rays or this is like... Um, um, you know, high energy particles from the sun hitting the upper atmosphere, generating muons, which then travel through your chip and deposit energy. And um, this 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 uh, deposited energy uh, is powerful enough to break these spared electrons, right? These superconducting electrons all over the chip, and now you have these unpaired, normal-like electrons, and they cause energy. A loss because they can absorb energy and yeah, huh, the, the quantum information is in these qubits also stored as energy so now you have a process that's very common right cosmic rays are just happening the, the whole time um, and also background radiation that is actually capable of causing massive error on a chip wide scale consistently and that is catastrophic But do, do you think that just putting a, a big layer of lead above the chip and making sure that you don't have uh, background radiation close to your chip, that this is, uh, a, will resolve the problem? Or do you think that people have to, do we have to be worried about this or is this something that's entirely solvable? Well, you'd have to make your fridge out of non-radioactive parts. That's going to be tough, right? Because... Uh, You know, radioactivity is everywhere. 
uh, the, the lead, even lead is radioactive. Yeah, you need to use the old lead, right? Yeah, so the only way to really suppress this is to use lead that uh, um, has been at the bottom of an ocean or a sea for 2,000 years because the cosmic rays would be stopped by you know, a lot of water. And if they're on the surface, they would be exposed and become a little radioactive. So this is Roman lead because the Romans used lead for their boats. And if they would load up their boat with, I don't know what, probably like olive oil or, or some, some good wine, they would throw out the lead. Now, there's a finite amount, obviously, of Roman lead. So to use that all up and to make a ceiling on a fridge that itself is still radioactive because it cons contains steel from I don't know where uh, is maybe not uh, the best uh, approach. So, you know, you'd, you'd have to solve it in the device itself. And I think beautifully there have been experiments done back with the, you know, the superconducting resonators for astronomy that I used to work in my PhD. And they, they made resonators on membranes. They made them with some kind of a backplate coating. And that really helped to suppress uh, the effects those high energy impacts have. So, yeah, it's a bit back to the roots with respect to, uh, to, to uh, you know, technology development. But what that really tells you is that, again, I mean, quantum computing is a specific field but it overlaps a lot with other fields that uh, have similar uh, technological or scientific challenges. And it, one of them is, is, you know, these microwave kinetic inductance detectors, you know, using superconducting resonators for astronomy. So shall we do some, some quick uh, uh, rapid questions where you just answer either or, like I give you two options and you quickly tell me the one that you choose? Uh, let's start with like uh, 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 places. So, uh, do you prefer Santa Barbara or Scheveningen? Ah, that's a tough one. So in Santa Barbara, you can't really swim in the water; it's too cold. In Scheveningen, you can. So summer in Scheveningen beats Santa Barbara, but the other times of the year, I, I would be in Santa Barbara. Science or engineering? Yeah, both. All right, academia or industry? Um. That's a tough one. I've done both, and I'm now trying to find a hybrid model. So um, I would say um, academia, then industry, then ask yourself what you want, what you want to do. Uh, Transmons or Xmons? Hmm. I would say that um, the key focus is in building a system that actually functions. Um, I would say that. That is the engineering approach, and I think that's the right approach. So that is what the X means for me. Then um, I do I do have the question here. I did write down quantum advantage or quantum supremacy, but we, we settled now on beyond classical computing, right? Um, but um, let's ask beyond classical computing or quantum error correction, do, where, where do you think is will, will be the, the important progress for the field? I think we'll see beautiful experiments, being, pilot experiments and pilot demonstration being done with quantum error correction. I think that will be coming. Um, but the path to, to, I mean, you look, can look at the estimates, and I think the minimum you need is around 10, 10, to 100, 10 to 50 million qubits. So the path towards building 10 million qubits is, in my mind, not clear. 
I would say that requires an architecture that is not just highly coherent or scalable, but also lean on control and readout. And I don't think we have it yet. So I think we'll see lots of interesting pilot demonstrations this decade, but we, I don't think we'll see error correction functioning to the level we needed this decade. I, and to keep the field going and to keep it interesting and people interested, I think we need to double down on enabling beyond classical computing for problems that are, I think, relevant rather than just random sampling, we need to do something with that power that we apparently are able to build. So I think this decade will be the decade of useful beyond classic computing. At least that's what I hope. And uh, we will see what happens. And I suspect that what we discover there will be very useful for error correction, but not this decade. Then a new superconducting qubits or more superconducting qubits? I think uh, new as in better, yes. All right. Um, I think this is also really funny. I think John Martinez at the time uh, at one of the March meetings, he was saying right now is not the point for making making more. At the time, it was not the time to make more qubits, but to make the, the entangling gates better. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Mm. So let's let's now uh, shift gears a bit and talk a bit about, about your future here um, and uh, talk about yeah, how do you, how are you, you have learned how to build a complicated 50-ish qubit quantum computer. Um, how are you gonna do your, do you take this experience to uh, Forschungszentrum Jülich and, and what are the things you learn in, in, in sort of the software part, the hardware part, uh, etc.? So I, th I think the key question that I, I um, arrived at was, how do I build a better qubit? How do I build a system using that which can do something? And it starts with a very fundamental question. You know, what, what's the fundamental limitation of a qubit? And I don't think we have a complete picture of that. So that's a very academic question, right? Because you have to leverage academia, PhD students and postdocs to really figure out fundamental physics that goes on. I mean, these superconducting qubits are actually quite dirty systems. Uh, they consist of substrates with oxides or residue from chemistry. You put a metal film on top with some inclusion of oxygen or magnetic impurities. You make an oxide barrier. Well, that, that's, you know, that's an amorphous barrier with inclusion of I don't know what. It's jagged. Uh, it, it contains... Uh, configurational defects that may couple to your quantum state. So a solid state system is actually natively a dirty system. And to try to make something beautiful with that, in my mind, that's the, the well, almost artful challenge that we have as physicists, as device physicists. But then you also need to go the next step and actually build a system with that and care about things like fidelity, care about performance, care about yield, care about reproducibility. So that's very much an engineering mindset. So you need the scientific exploration where you test out new ideas and see whether it could work, but also then 
try to embed that in a larger system and see whether it can function. And in my mind, any, any way you, you, you look at this problem, you will need a team that has the um, you know, a scientific exploration mindset but also an engineering, let's, let's, you know, let's build it, let's get it done, let's get it working mindset. And that intermarriage is, I think, not trivial, and it's not so easy to find. And I, one of my ambitions is to uh, stimulate that here in Munich. So you, you will have, have to also focus on education to get some new eager PhD students, master students who come with fresh eyes to the, uh, to the challenges. Yes, education is, is, I think, an important part of it because, uh, as you put, it allows you to, to attract new fresh minds to, to look at, at, uh, you know, at, uh, at uh, the problem in a new way, in a new light. Um, but it, it also allows you to, to train the next generation while you're building a system. And I think that combination is very attractive. And I think that's also the right way to approach this. So in my mind, education is, a, is, a, is, a, is an important part of this, perhaps integral part of this. And that's why I think this uh, academic slash engineering approaches is the right way to do it. Maybe for, for a, a last topic, we can talk about the... Um Chinese quantum effort because they recently repeated the supremacy experiments with more qubits. And I think it's fair to say, I don't, I don't think they would even disagree that it's really a repetition of the Google experiment. They didn't, uh, you know, it's not that they used a different, a, a, a very different qubit type or, or, or uh, did a very different measurement protocol, but it's, it's really largely uh, repeating the experiment. And you said before that in Europe we haven't done this and even Even IBM and Rigetti Quantum Computing, who are other competitors in the superconducting qubit field, haven't really um, uh, uh, repeated this uh, beyond classical computing milestone. Uh, what, what did the Chinese group do right? Should the other groups also do this? And what does it take to demonstrate, uh, to, to master this experiment? Yeah, I, I would take two things out of this uh, the Chinese uh, work. And I think it's, I think it's a, I mean, it, it's very impressive what they did. So they have a team of people that was able to go over published literature and thesis and try to piece together how you build such a system and to, to actually build it and do it and run it. And I think, I think it's amazing to see that that can be done. It's really also healthy to see other people also using this uh, random state sampling as a benchmarking tool that hasn't been done much yet. Uh, so I think in terms of program management and project guidance, I think this is extremely, extremely impressive done. Um, but it also highlights, um, you, know, you know, I think the Google effort achieved beyond classical computing, and it looks like the Chinese effort did, uh, you know, even on top of that, went a bit further to do that. And, you know, one is... Uh, sponsored by industry, the other one is sponsored by a government. But at the core, these are quite, you know, uh, well-functioning teams that are kind of like organized somewhat monolithically aimed towards a single ambitious goal. And this is something that you 
don't see too often, I think, in our field. And it's, it's high risk, high risk, high reward. And uh, apparently, uh, they feel free to do so. Because man, many other research groups are stuck before 50 qubits, right? I mean, uh, it, it's quite difficult to reach. I mean, people should, people should appreciate it. It's, it's actually not that people cannot build a 50 qubit quantum processor, but a 50 qubit quantum processor that will work. Like it's, it's like many, many research groups at this stage would be able to have a 50 qubits on a chip and have each of them work maybe. It would take some trials, but to have all of them work together as a 50 qubit unit, that's, that's, really, um, that's, that's really a challenge that uh, people are struggling with. Well, I think uh, important to highlight here is that you need quite some infrastructure, whether it's um, fridges, cabling, control electronics, software, um, and also people to really calibrate such systems. So you need quite some infrastructure to successfully run a large-scale system. But, I mean, you could also decrease the size and say, well, can you run five qubits well? And I think that's more of an exploratory question. But that is also not always too easy for some, uh, some groups. So will you be aiming, what, what kind of number of qubits will you be aiming, aiming at first when you start? Well, we, we don't have the capabilities to fabricate qubits at Jullich yet. This will arrive soon. And then, uh, then it starts. And um, we will have to um, build up the know-how, build up the technology, and um, build up the device architecture to really get something going. Um, and I would say that while we're doing that, um, it's also important to keep a focus on the more fundamental aspects to do in parallel do research that, you know, three, four years from now, you can actually merge into kind of that, that you know, that train towards larger scale systems. I would say, you know, I would like to see a few qubit systems next year, and then whether we, when we get that to work to really start scaling up uh, somewhat aggressively towards 2030, which is, I think, a really good size where you can still do it without too much difficulty, but um, really build up the whole infrastructure needed to, to, to run such systems. I mean, around 10, you can just do still manually. Around 20, you need to have um, a, a, a better structured approach. So I think that that, that will be also an interesting, uh, interesting crossover, which I think a lot of teams you mentioned, you know, they haven't gotten there yet. So in terms of the challenge, there's the software, there's the cryogenics, there's the fabrication. Which there's one? The, there's the architecture. And the architecture. It's architecture. How do you build a scalable system of superconducting qubits, uh, in this case, that is actually able to, uh, you know, run gates or run, run anything with, with, you know, fidelities that are performant enough? And I think for that, the error rates need to go down by on the order of a factor 10. And do you think, do you think that there is, that there's, what, what, what is the, what is the place where you would, in, in, in architecture, better fabrication material science, better cryogenics, or, you know, all the software around the quantum computer, where do you see the, where do you see the key place to innovate? 
I think the key limitation is the qubit itself at this point, because we've seen that we can scale systems. Uh, you know, logical systems seem to you know not have wonderful coherence, and smaller systems seem to be better. So there is also a problem when you scale to larger systems. And what happens is you need to bring in all the control wiring, you need to get additional layers of 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 of, of well, your chip, art flip chip, or or other kinds of bonding uh, uh, approaches, and you add to the complexity of your system. You add more materials, you add more layers, you add more control wires, you add more stuff. And to keep that going at the level of coherence that you need is quite a challenge, and it seems that that is, at this point, difficult. So actually, you need to put it in reverse and ask yourself, how do you make a qubit that actually is already really performant without all this wiring and can um, scale. And I think that uh, recipe has not been figured out yet. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds like an exciting uh, But exciting yeah, it, it goes though. back to the architecture. What do I actually want to build? Yeah. And I think that is where, um, where, what we need to work on critically so you are now at the stage you are i guess you are uh you will be hiring a big team soon so uh well i'll be hiring and then we we i think i like to organically grow that towards a big team not like massively and and then and then take on this challenge and uh hopefully have a, a quantum computer in europe that can uh, rival uh eventually at least be at the level of the of the Google and Chinese experiments. Well, we'll see where we get. I mean, I, I, I don't. It's not my ambition to copy that stuff. I think it's my ambition to really um, go back to the core and figure out what what you can build. So to lay the scientific and technological foundations to build a large scale system that could do something on the path towards usefulness, and that's. Um, that's something that's, I think, very, very, uh, very interesting. And I think that also addresses the key challenges we have in this field now. Can it work? This is, I think, an open question still. Well, that's a good point to maybe end. Of course, you and I are very excited about this. Otherwise, we wouldn't have spent a lot of our lives so far working, yes, working on it. So thank, thanks a lot for this conversation. Um, I hope that we covered... Uh, Uh, most of uh, most of the interesting topics. Uh, I could talk about this, of course, a lot longer because it's also my field, and, and, and that maybe showed showed in this podcast episode. But uh, um, I hope it will also be interesting. And so, uh, anyway, thanks a lot. It was a real pleasure for me to. Uh, to Thank you. Yes. It.